0: Hello and welcome back to 4th Estate, the show where journalists talk journalism. Coming to you from 2SER in Sydney on Gadigal lands of the Eora Nation, right across Australia on the Community Radio Network and directly to your device across the globe via podcast. I'm Tina Quinn. It's good to have your company. In this special edition of 4th Estate, we were joined in studio by one of Australia's most respected journalists, Laura Tingle. Laura's four decades in media began at Fairfax's The Australian Financial Review in 1981 and has included long stints at Rupert Murdoch's The Australian, as well as The Sydney Morning Herald and The Age. She's now best known to audiences as 7.30's chief political correspondent on the ABC. The author of four quarterly essays, her latest, The High Road, What Australia Can Learn from New Zealand, was published by Black Ink late last year. Our discussion was fairly wide-ranging. We talked about the plight of journalists navigating social media, how Australia's fourth estate is going at keeping the government to account and whether public broadcasters should be held to a higher standard than their counterparts in the private sector. First, though, we began by discussing this week's editorial in The Australian, which took aim at both Sally Neighbour, the executive producer of ABC's Four Corners, and Louise Milligan, the programme's star investigative journalist. The most dangerous enemy of the journalist is bad, lazy, deceitful journalism, said the Oz. That piece of wisdom is a sentiment that many journalists would no doubt agree with, although many disagreed with its target. I asked Laura about the Oz's piece, as well as her thoughts on the overall editorial direction that the paper and its owner, News Corp, is now taking. Laura Tingle, welcome to Fourth Estate. Thanks, Tana. So being a journalist at the ABC, it normally means you have to have a pretty thick skin to survive. So I'd be interested in getting your thoughts on the editorial in uh, Tuesday's edition of The Australian. Was it just more of the rough and tumble, or are we seeing something a bit darker here, do you think?
1: It's certainly escalating. I don't know about the editorial in The Australian in particular, but um, I when mean, you look at their coverage day to day and everybody at The Australian is taking turns to have a shot. And most of it's pretty tedious and basically fairly breathtaking, mm. um, given the position of News Limited in Australia. But it is it is what it is and it's not going to stop. So you've just got to get on with it.
0: But did you not think this, this week's editorial in The Oz on Louise Milligan and, and Sally Neighbour was particularly grubby? I mean... There wasn't even a byline attribution to the piece. It was basically the Oz putting out this editorial and saying, this is our stance. Uh, This is the Australian stance on the ABC and these two women. I mean... Sally Neighbour and Louise Milligan seem to be the the favourite you know, focus for the Oz. Uh, when it comes to attacking the ABC, they sort of hit for those two women. It seems, you know, especially in recent weeks, quite relentless.
1: Well, it is relentless and it goes right back to the beginning of the Canberra bubble story. And without doubt, um, the Australian has been sort of campaigning on this uh, for the whole period to personalise it the way they have, while at the same time which I find a bit gobsmacking, that they are setting up these stories where sort of Four Corners is at war with the ABC management who um, the Australian loves Mm. to hate almost as much or possibly more. Mm. Um, And uh, so there's sort of a bit of a tone of, uh, oh, well, you know, they're standing up for something and um, and I... uh, Whatever angle you want to take on the ABC and Sally Neighbour and Louise Milligan, if you're at The Australian, is fine. It's all fair game. And I just find it perplexing that they have nothing better to do than... I mean, they must have four or five people whose main job these days is to just attack the ABC. And seriously. The ABC has lots of flaws. It should be held up for scrutiny, all those things, but... I mean, we heard in estimates the other day that somebody in the government is monitoring what people Mm. like on, Mm. is it Twitter or something? I don't know. On Twitter, yeah. And, I mean, it's the same
0: sort of thing. It's just got really ridiculous. Mm. Maybe that's the job title at the moment going, sort of the ABC writer at the Oz or the ABC critic at the Oz, it seems, you know. There's plenty of people filling the job. Yeah, um, yeah. So, and even, even
1: columnists who aren't usually in the fray. I mm. mean, I noticed Robert Gottliebson was writing
0: something about the ABC. You know, it's just it's just got quite frenzied. Well, the political heat around the ABC and the government has rarely been as hot as it is right now. With Christian Porter now pulling out of the defamation case and a settlement done and dusted, is there a chance, do you think, for a reset? Uh, or is this sort of the new normal, do you think? Well, what
1: are we trying to reset here, I mean, you don't want to be... I mean, I'm not ABC management, uh, but in terms of news and journalism, we're not here to be friends of the government or the opposition of the day, whoever that is. It's like when people say to you, you know, oh, you don't seem to like the Prime Minister or the opposition leader or whatever, and you go, well, that's not my job. Um, And Mm. so, you know, if they are are going to continue this, uh, there's not much the ABC can do about it Mm. other than, you know, try to be, you know, professional and do journalism. And uh, I don't know that it will be reset. Uh, you know, they the government is full of ideological warriors. There are a lot of people involved in this who are desperate to make a name for themselves and to suck up to the prime minister. Uh, so... You know, one of the ways you can do that at the moment is yelling at the ABC very loudly and, and making a name for yourself there. I mean, it's quite transparent to me that that's what's going on. Mm. Uh, and if that's the best they can do, you know, good luck with your job prospects. You know, I mean, it's it's not a great. People have made their names on much sort of sort of smaller things. I think mm. about Bronwyn Bishop and the tax commissioner back in the eighties. You know, it, it's a good platform to get noticed, but. Uh, is it particularly edifying for the people involved? I don't think so.
0: I notice how, you know, and you, you mentioned that, you know, oh, you, you don't seem to like the Prime, you know, that criticism of, oh, you don't seem to to like the Prime Minister. Well, it's not my job to to do mm. so. I mean, Lee Sales, for instance, a, a you know, very close colleague of yours, seems to be getting it from both sides uh, mm. at the moment, which I think is proof that she's actually doing her job. You know, it's either that... Her and the ABC in a war against the coalition or you've got the, the left who, if Anthony Albanese is on the program and she really, you know, gives him the hard questions, oh, well, you're just, yeah. you're sucking up to the PM, you're, yeah. you know, you're so anti-Labor, you know, and it's not her job to to really cozy up to either of those two people. No, it's, it's I mean,
1: it's sort of hilarious sometimes. I mean, I, I get it as well, but she cops an absolutely outrageous Mm. quantity of stuff. But, you know, often you'll get, you know, one tweet saying, you know, LNP stooge, (laughs) you know, and uh, the other one will be saying, you know, uh, Labour stooge. um, And, you know, it'll be about exactly the same piece of information. So like Twitter does, Twitter isn't good, but it is out there. uh, And I I mean, people's sort of lack of understanding Mm. of you know, what journalists' job is sometimes and and their one-eyedness, you know. I mean, people are entitled to their views but they are so one-eyed and they see a a sort of conspiracy or a strategy Mm. um, or a prejudice in something, um, you know, they attribute these sort of evil evil um, intents to what journalists do and, you know, the, the ABC's been bought off by, you know, it's, it's hired all these news-limited people and it's gone to the dogs and all that sort of stuff. Well, it's just terrible and I think the way she's being treated is mm. really just abominable. I mean, okay, you can sort of not agree with something that somebody has done but the sort of vitriol that is dished out from both sides is just gobsmacking, and you just—it's just like, what? You, haven't you got lives? Mm. I mean, shouldn't you be sort of thinking about what the underlying issues are here, rather than just talking about the journos? I mean, seriously. I mean, I think that culture has sort of come up because of the way the media has become splintered by the way News Limited campaigns are so aggressively now. Um around the world. And uh, so it's sort of left everybody else open to it. Mm.
0: But seriously, what do they think is going to be achieved here? Mm. You know, it's just madness. Well, it's funny. Soap operas don't seem to be that popular these days anymore, but I feel like we've created our own soap opera. That's quite right, I think. (laughs) In the reality. Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) Well, Let's turn to, to social media. Again, the ABC is in the firing line. You mentioned Senate Estimates this week. The managing director um, has been in Senate Estimates this week and has been drilled on the social media likes of some of its high-profile journalists and personalities. Do you think it's a bit much for, for MPs to be obsessing about what, you know, the ABC uh, peeps are saying and, and liking on social media? Or is do you think this is an important part of, of being seen to to be impartial? Well, I think it's... It's been changing, you know. uh, You know,
1: when I joined Twitter, I think, I don't know, 10 years ago, it was sort of quite jolly and good fun and, you know, everything. Mm -hmm. But it's just become – I mean, I more or less stay off Twitter now. Mm -hmm. You know, I'll tweet a column. I'll tweet, you know, sort of David Rowe cartoons because I think he's Mm -hmm. a very good cartoonist. Um, I'll tweet articles that I think are interesting, but I don't interact with it anymore because it's just an absolute hiding to nothing. Mm -hmm. And, of course, I've got into trouble for a couple of my tweets anyway. Uh, well, not into trouble, but, you know, I've, <laughs> they, they may have been ill-judged. Um, but um, I uh, I just think monitoring what people are liking when there are satirical websites, I mean, mm. uh, I just think that it, it's just got bonkers, you know. I mean, yes, uh, I mean, my view of tweeting now is, you know, you don't want to do anything that brings the ABC into disrepute. Um, And there was one notable one I tweeted, which I, you know, in in sort of anger at what was happening to Mm -hmm. our colleagues. Um, And that was not a good thing because apart from the else, it reflected badly on the ABC. But uh, I just think when you're starting to sort of basically say you're not allowed to like, you know, a funny joke on Mm. Twitter, I mean, this is supposed to be the Liberal Party. This is supposed to be the party of free speech and yes. and uh, individual rights. Give me a break.
0: Well, I mean, I was going to ask about that. I mean, it must irk you that, you know, the people that are often crying most loudly about the ABC and, and what its journalists are, are getting up to on social media are also often the ones pushing for, for freedom of speech, rights. Can, I mean, can you can you be supporting Craig Kelly's right to post one minute conspiracy theories and things that completely go against uh, public health advice, science, uh, but then attacking ABC journos the next because they liked something from The Chaser? Mm. Yeah. Well, I'd say no, but you know, <laughs> I probably shouldn't. <laughs>
1: I'll get into trouble again. Oh, dear. No, I won't. No, I, no the ABC does not uh, – I mean, I'm you know, I'm, I'm – getting into trouble suggests I've got into some terrible trouble. Mm. I've been reminded of my obligations under the social media policy and, and, I, and I feel I've got to stick with them. So.
0: Do you think, though, that as the ABC, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a public broadcaster, it's a publicly funded institution, do you think that ABC journalists deserve to be held to a, a higher standard of account than, than, say, their counterparts within the private sector of the media?
1: Well, having spent 40 years of my career in print in the private sector, including mm-hmm. 10 years at News Limited, <laughs> um, I can say that ABC journalists are held to a higher standard, mm-hmm. a much higher standard. Um, you know, the number of people who have to clear what I do here is so much higher than it ever was, you know, in, the, in sort of more recent years of print where they've lost editors and sub-editors and all that sort mm-hmm. of stuff. We are held to a higher standard. If If there's a complaint to the ABC... It's officially followed up. There's an inquiry, you know, all of those things. It's it's much more accountable mm. than than private sector media organisations. Should it be? Yes, of course. Mm-hmm. It's taxpayers' money. Mm-hmm.
0: Let's change tack a little on the topic of social media. Should should ABC employees even be on there? It's a charged space and one often, you know, quite free of any nuance or, or balance. It's more often than not deeply partisan and also just quite a misogynistic playground for trolls. Why be there? If if ABC employees deserted these platforms, do you think it would be such a bad thing? Well, it depends what deserting it means. You
1: know, do you... Uh, I mean, should you not be saying anything about anything? Should, should you be not expressing an opinion on social media is, is the issue here, I think. I mean, should I not be, you know, telling people who follow me on Twitter, that my column's here and they can find it here, mm-hmm. um, or that, you know, there's a story is broken, mm-hmm. you know, because pe- a lot of people rely on Twitter for their news and they might not actually follow, you know, the ABC News tweets, but they might follow me. Um, and, uh, you know, so does it become a question that uh, by highlighting some stories and not other stories i'm you know showing my bias um or is it just that i happen to remember to tweet that one (laughs) which is a bit more of my haphazard approach uh uh, should we be there commenting our own voices i think it's now increasingly difficult to do that as i said i'm not really on twitter very much Mm -hmm. anymore um you know, the the really big dilemmas I have with Twitter now are that sometimes, like, I'll open it up every couple of days and there'll be some thread going on that my name's sort of somehow got involved in and I literally have no idea what they're talking about. I often um, hop on Twitter and see Laura Tingle is trending. Yeah, and um, <laughs> and I, I, I don't know what it's about and it's often somebody's just linked me in, and they've sort mm-hmm. of said, oh, look at this Laura Tingle and, or something. But sometimes there's some discussion going on where somebody is claiming that you have said something, which just isn't isn't true. Mm. Um, And, I mean, one of them was that uh, I had a a joke with Lee Sales at the beginning of 2019. There was an opinion poll out Mm -hmm. and she said something like, you know, Laura, have you ever seen a a government with such bad poll numbers come back and win an election? And I said, no. (laughs) And I'd still say that because... No, I hadn't. Mm-hmm. And, but, you know, we both laughed because, you know, you don't give one one word answers. But this was subsequently taken up as and re- represented as something that I said on the eve of the federal election. Um, and, you know, and, and it's part of this narrative that's particularly run by Jared Henderson, which, once again, I only find out about from other people, but um, that, you know, that I predicted, quote, you know, that. Labor was going to win, and all this stuff. And when you look at what the quote is, what I actually said was most people seem to think Labor's going to win, mm, which mm-hmm. was true, mm-hmm. including cabinet ministers. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and uh, so I think
0: the coalition were very surprised that they won that the co- election. The,
1: co- the coalition was very surprised it won, uh, yeah. other than about two or three people in the last day. And so I was, I wasn't expressing a view. I was saying what I was reporting that most people in politics mm-hmm. thought that. Anyway, so I'm, I've got off the off the track here, but. You know, it is, it is tricky and I think some people are just getting off it anyway because it's not mm-hmm. good for their mental health. Others are sort of taking a defiant stance of saying, why shouldn't I be on it? Why shouldn't I
0: be allowed to be on it? Am I going to actually be bullied off it by the trolls? Well, do you think uh, just on mental health grounds, mm. it's getting harder to, to justify the need and importances of, of being on social mm. media?
1: Yeah. yeah. I, I mean, I, I can't see that... Um, you know, it's, it's that substantial a need Mm. to be on Twitter. i basically, as I said, don't do it. Mm -hmm. I don't do Facebook. Um, I was encouraged when I was still at the financial review at one stage, they sort of went through this big frenzy of, oh, you should all be on, you know, Facebook, LinkedIn, Twitter, blah, blah. Um, and so I sort of set up the pages and stuff, but the abuse there is actually worse, if anything, because it's not limited to 240 characters. So, I, and I put up pictures of my cat on Instagram now, and, <laughs> and that's about it. Um, I, I don't really get into the social media stuff too much. Mm.
0: You mentioned that you've had a 40 year career in media. You started at the AFR, the Australian Financial Review, in 1981, mm-hmm. was it? Yep. And 10 years you did at News Limited, and that was with The Australian. Mm. Tell us a bit about News Limited in those days, and what how how is it for you to now to now see what's happening with the Oz um, and the Daily Telegraph. I mean, the Daily Telegraph was always quite tabloidy, and but the Oz was held up as a much you know greater beacon of, of journalism. Yeah, well, it, if we're really going back, there'd been the great
1: uh, Journo's strike of nineteen eighty, just mm-hmm. before I joined mm-hmm. uh, Fairfax and that created a lot of bitterness Mm -hmm. uh, in the ranks. But there was always a view which looked like it from outside and which was the case on the inside, which was that the Australian always had a bit of a chip on its shoulder that people didn't take it seriously Mm -hmm. post the dismissal, which Mm -hmm. was the first time um, Murdoch was sort of seen to be really activist um, in in politics. And uh, so the sort of view... The Australian tended to be that, you know, the people at the Herald, the age or whatever, were all a bit stuck up and they right. all thought they were great and, you know, <laughs> all that stuff. But it was – and it, it still had a conservative agenda, but it was more a conservative economic agenda mm-hmm.
0: rather than a social agenda. Uh, Similar to the political parties at the time, really. If you look at the Liberal mm, Party under exactly. Malcolm Fraser, yeah, you know, it was economically quite conservative but socially not as much. Yeah.
1: Um, and well this is the 80s that I was there mm-hmm. the, and uh, the 90s so labor was in power mm-hmm. and everybody was talking about you know economic reform in those days mm-hmm. but um, you know th- there were sort of these patches of even more radical reform from um, from the coalition under John Howard at one stage as opposition leader and then John Hewson as fight back mm-hmm. so it, it was it was a conservative agenda but it was it was not sort of this feral, mm. you know, obsessive pursuit of people and, and issues um, as it's become. And it was regarded as a paper of record and that was something that was very important to us, I think. I mean, it, it, I suppose that in some ways is a reflection of the changing times. Would the Australian that I worked for exist in the current day? And I think the answer to that is no because in the, in at that time – for example, you know there wasn't the internet <laughs> mm-hmm. until quite right towards the end of my time at the uh, at the Australian. So you would be reporting stuff that people would be seeing for the first time. You know, like the budget, uh, or you know, some fascinating productivity commission mm-hmm. speech or report, or or a speech by a minister, uh, or something the prime minister of the day had said as news that you would be reading for the first time, and you'd be writing it as a very straight story about this is what happened. Now, because of the nature of the news cycle changing, uh, you know, the working presumption on all news desks is that everybody sort of knows the basics now, so you're mm. always trying to push the story forward. So, you know, it probably wouldn't exist in that sense. But, yeah, it is It is still extraordinary to sort of see what it's become. Mm. But I, I, I look at it in, in the context of, you know, news around, as in News Corp around the world um, and, you know, what's happened with Fox News mm. and and you know what's happening in in the UK mm-hmm. is just part of part of a picture
0: in a recent quarterly essay you you wrote uh, the High Road," uh, you eloquently spoke of you know, about leadership and what Australia could learn from New Zealand. Australian and New Zealanders share many similarities, uh, but in many ways we're moving in quite different directions. Yes, we you know we drive on the same side of the road and have the Union Jack on our flag, but in many ways, you know we're as different as violet crumbles and pineapple chunks. Why the differences and what do you think we could learn from our Kiwi cousins? Well, th- the title was sort of half ironic mm.
1: because I think there are things we can learn from New Zealand, uh, but there are also things that I was saying, here's some lessons we sort of we just avoided. I think the things we can learn from them is that we all get stuck in our own boxes of thinking that there is only one way mm-hmm. things can happen. And New Zealand is so similar, but the debate's you know, it's just like a bit of a you know altered state, you know, parallel universe in the way they conduct their politics. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you look at why that is. Now, I think there's a whole range of reasons. It is a small place. Mm-hmm. Everybody in New Zealand knows everybody, as I found out. <laughs> um, and it doesn't have states, uh, but you know, the, and when they moved to the MMP system um, of of electing people. Um, just one of those things, mixed member proportional. (laughs) Step, I've got this Freudian (laughs) senior moment thing where whenever I say MMP, I immediately forget what it stands for. But anyway, (laughs) it's the same system as Germany um, and the ACT, more or less. Uh, But what it's meant is that it's almost impossible for the major parties to form a government in their own Mm -hmm. right. So they have to negotiate. They have to form coalitions. And that just completely changes the nature of the political discussion. So um, it
0: encourages a lot more compromise and discussion and... yes, yeah, and, and, and openness, Yeah,
1: I think, um,
0: it, all of those
1: things. And everybody here poo-pooed when it happened because they said this will be the end of reform, that right. no big reforms will happen, which I think is a really terrible misunderstanding of why they went to MMP. Mm. It was because New Zealand took this you know, the, the high road, um, you know, approach of, you know, really uber-radical reform
0: mm-hmm.
1: right through the 80s and 90s. And the electorate just went, whoa, you know, um, or bro or something. <laughs> they they just said, you know, you've burnt us here. You didn't tell mm. us you were going to do this. And mm. both sides did it. So it was actually a reflection of the fact that New Zealand had gone too far on reforms and, how how do you judge that? Well, one, the public wasn't up to it, but two, a lot of the reforms just caused such havoc and mm. didn't reap the rewards that they were supposed to reap. And, you know, communities were literally destroyed overnight as a result. And, you know, New
0: Zealand is still paying the price for that, as is New Zealand politics. If New Zealand is currently operating on the high road and we're not, why do you think that is, uh, besides some of the, you know, the... the Points that you've just made—is it because do you think what they're doing socially also has um, plays into that? You know, they have a treaty with their indigenous people, for instance, or is it that you know you mention what News Corp, what's happened with News Corp, not just here but in the UK, Mm. in the US? Do you think that because their media is not as shouty, um, nor does it you know, and it doesn't have any major ownership from News Corp? Uh, Do you think that plays into it? Mm. I mean, it can't just be the pineapple chunks.
1: (laughs) Yeah. No, look, I think, you know, the structural reasons, you know, certainly the way uh, the parliament is now made up, but without a doubt the fact that uh, Murdoch isn't there Mm -hmm. does change it. I mean, there are some shock jocks in New Zealand. Mm -hmm. uh, But, I mean, it's quite an interesting place because all the major cities have their own newspapers. You know, there's much more diversity of newspapers there. So it's not just... Like there's no national newspaper. Mm-hmm. I think I quote Helen Clark in the uh, mm. essay sort of mm. saying when she whenever she's going through an airport lounge and sees the Australian she just laughs, laughs, <you know>? <laughs> because the Australian has become this you know unifying vehicle for mm. and even when I was there, you know the power of the Australian wasn't because we necessarily broke the best stories mm-hmm. or whatever I thought, I mean, you know, we did break stories. but our power was that in a newsroom in Bunbury or Cairns or whatever, the news director who knew that they had to sort of cover the national news, the only thing that they saw was the Australian. So mm-hmm. that was its voice there. In New Zealand, you've got this diversity, um, you know, the uh, New Zealand Herald, uh, the Dominion, um, the News, all those other newspapers, and they're very different. Mm-hmm. So instead of News Limited owning, you know, all of the tabloids right around the country and being the only organisation in town, um, that, that does make a difference. So that's big. Uh, and if you look at something like uh, the, the Treaty of Waitangi Tribunal mm-hmm. and the way they've gone with uh, the relationships with First Nations people versus us, that, that was sort of this moment in time uh, which we could have had as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, but politics is so different. And I quoted Jim Bolger, who was a conservative prime minister, uh, head of the Nationals, uh, or National as it's called. And he was asked, "Well, why did you do this? You know, because it was a matter of contention within within his own party." And he said, "Well, because it was the you know it was New Zealand's honour was at stake." Mm. And I don't know about you, but can you just imagine anybody in Australia saying that? Um, I mean, it it is different. It was you know it was about the the country and the crown with the Treaty of Waitangi, but and it is more complicated in Australia and all those things. But it was a moment of leadership and it was in the 90s and and it was done and everybody now thinks it was a great idea but it was not without immense controversy at the time or subsequently so but now you see Maori really integrated into New Zealand's cultural life
0: and into its identity in a, in a really fabulous way look i think many would agree that it's it's really such a missed opportunity for us here Moving on a little bit, you've you've been covering the political beat now for for four decades. Many people are now of the view that our politics is at an all time low. So, do you think that? Do you think that as well, or are we suffering from a short term memory, or even sort of rose tinted version of the, of the past? Really, I mean, for instance, the Sports Rorts affair during the Keating government was a pretty Unedifying an and ridiculous spectacle. If you if you really look back at it, mm. are things really all that different? Do you think? Or well, I think they're different in a few ways.
1: One mm-hmm. of them is that uh, you know they're always sports rorts or you mm-hmm. know, slush mm-hmm. funds. I mean, they were going back into eternity. They they're just one of those things of politics. I think they've become more blatant mm-hmm. and much larger. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I suppose I always tend to things look at things in a structural or systemic way. And you go well. Are we getting better policy outcomes? Are people actually interested in policy outcomes? Uh, there's always politics involved in any decision that's made, but I reckon it's now eighty or ninety percent politics mm-hmm. and ten percent policy. Whereas in the um, Hawke and Keating years, which is when I, I mean I, I was just I came in in the tail end of, of the Fraser government, so I don't know that much about it. But the arguments were about policy. Yeah. And the arguments were about pros and cons of policy first and the politics second. And I think, you know, we're now in a position where it's basically all political operatives Mm -hmm. uh, in Parliament House. Um, You know, there are very few matters of principle that are ever really discussed. The politics comes first. And I'm not saying that's just about the coalition either, really. Um, I think both parties have lost their way about Mm -hmm. who they are, which is partly because of changing times and changing social structures. So they're flailing around trying to find points of difference. And I think also you can't underestimate, it sounds a bit dull, but once the reform agenda had sort of been sort of more or less completed on the economic side, as it then was, politicians were sort of left going, oh, actually, there's not we don't have any levers to pull, Mm. you know. So they started uh, in in the Howard era getting into areas which are traditionally state areas, you know, health, education, to a much greater extent than they previously had, infrastructure. Uh, That sort of downgraded the apparent role of the states um, and it also meant the sort of scope for boondoggling, if you like, was much greater because, you know, you could go around and announce a new hospital or whatever during an election campaign. Stuff that states used to do. So I think on all of those counts, it's structurally
0: changed Mm -hmm. and none of it is for the better. The recent budget seemed to really show a problem with the media coverage, a huge budget deficit basically, but no plan for wage growth um, or climate change or really the future, it wasn't really future looking in any way. So in short, it was an eye-wateringly expensive document but completely stuck in the short-term news and electoral cycle. It seemed really geared towards short-term pleasure the media didn't really seem to know what to do with the budget. Was it good news or was it a wasted opportunity, do you think? Well, I think it was a wasted
1: opportunity. H- having said that, my sort of lack of confidence in the government making really good decisions about where you restrain spending meant that, <laughs> I think, uh, uh, like a lot of people, I, I was a bit torn about it. Um, I mean, I don't think they can cut back spending no. at, at this stage. Um all that much. I think we're sort of in this hiatus where, having listened to this sort of diatribe about debt and deficits for mm. so long, the entire political uh, sort of structure doesn't exactly know where it's going to land next, you know, mm. uh, what's what, what should be the formula for what you're looking for. That's sort of let the government off the hook a bit more than it should have. And I think, as you say, there are all these areas. Overall, there wasn't a lot of Things that I mean, for example, the aged care package, Mm -hmm. which was obviously a really big spend. Of course, they should be spending that much money, possibly more on aged care, because they haven't spent it in the last Mm -hmm. 10 years and, you know, they desperately have to catch up. But, I mean, that to me is an interesting – I'm sort of going – diverting for a moment – but the fact that they actually ended up saying, look, we couldn't put any more money into it because we're physically incapable of finding the people and resources to staff – a massive expansion in aged care is is a fairly terrible indictment of the last ten years. I think. Mm. So you know, I, I wouldn't uh, wouldn't want them to have not sp- sort of committed to spending that money in aged care. But things like climate change and and wages. I mean, I this is very old fashioned of me, but I, I suppose my view is, you know, we've got to this point where everybody's saying, well, monetary policy has reached the end of its limits. Uh, fiscal policy, well, we've just spent ourselves stupid and, you know, we, there's not much more we can do there. If you actually think that, you know, the underlying structural problem in the in the economy is low inflation and low wages growth, um, I think there's got to be a questioning of both sides about, well, what are you going to do about it? You know, at some point, in the same way they had to address debt and deficits, they're going to have to say, we're going to actually have to take a more assertive position on Doing something about low wages, whether that's intervening in national wages cases, or you know doing a bit more than they're already doing on uh, aged care wages, and the idea that the the government might actually promote, support, uh, encourage mm-hmm. higher wages growth. Uh, I mean, I've asked both sides about this, and they just look at you blankly and go, "Oh well, you know, mutter, mutter, mutter." <laughs> but to me, it's sort of a little bit obvious, you know, that that's where it's going to have to go. But Anyway, that's just me.
0: <laughs> when we last spoke, you uh, said that you felt that it was, you felt the current government's approach when it came to the economy and uh, and and how it played, you know, fiscal policy to the masses was very much that of an an undergraduate university club view of of commies and capitalists. You know, it's fairly quaint, but it doesn't show much sophistication when it comes to the actual issues. Do, do you still believe that?
1: I, I I think that we're at one of those tipping points you come to every few decades in economics where, whether it was sort of post-Bretton Woods, when it was the rise of monetarism in the 70s and 80s, where the fashion of the day no longer fits. Mm -hmm. And without a doubt, that is happening. You know, people are rethinking stuff around the world, you know, the IMF, the OECD, you know, they're rethinking all of those sort of rules about, you know, what was good and what wasn't good, you know, they're no longer appropriate in this in this particular era, either because of the Im- impacts of the pandemic or because of the shift um, in sort of economic power to China. Whatever it is, you know, they're going to have to rethink the way they approach setting economic policy. And we are nowhere near having that discussion in Australia. Mm. Absolutely nowhere near it. And it has to be one where you you know you try to work out what you want to do, and then you have to persuade people about it. And we're having a discussion that's sort of like five years ago, Mm. as far as I'm concerned. So I don't know
0: that there's anybody on either side who's really, you know, in that space yet. In many ways, this term of the Morrison government, the third term of the coalition government is the most crisis driven and, and scandal plagued government of recent memory from, you know, Morrison's holiday to Hawaii during the bushfires to rorts around grants to the vaccine rollout and the mess of our aged care sector, Brittany Higgins. As you just mentioned, there's there's no national program for, for quarantine facilities at the moment. There's been no shortage of material for journalists to cover, but still the PM and the government are doing you know, very well in the polls. Does this show the lack of impact the media now has because people are, are either largely disengaged or do you think the pandemic's rewriting the script? Because it, it's all feeling very Teflon at the moment, no matter what this government does.
1: Mm. Well, the polls have actually... We've all stopped looking at polls because, mm. you know,
0: it's all a bit embarrassing. Um, do you think the US election in 2016 sort of made us go, well, well, oh, throw it all out? <laughs> and, our, <laughs> and, our, and our polling here,
1: yeah. To, to, yeah. to some extent. Um, but, I, you know, I think there have been a couple of things. I think people are completely disengaged mm. um, and completely cynical. So, you know, if you write, you know. Rightly th- so, do you think? Uh, yeah, probably. <laughs> I think people should be engaged. But, you know, if you write a story saying, the government has been biting the heads off chooks. You know, people just sort of tend to say, "Yeah, well, that'd be right." You mm. know? I mean, you can't shock people anymore mm. about how bad politics is. So that makes it hard to have any impact. And of course, you know, the, the figures on where people get their news now are really sort of quite staggering. You know, the number of people who only get it via Facebook or Twitter uh, or some other. Platform who don't actually watch the news or or current affairs, and I think if you look at the reach of Sky News After Dark into mm. regional Australia, which I think is one of the really interesting sort of and largely untold stories
0: on free to air television. I um, was thinking about that when you when you were talking about the Oz and the fact that mm. in, in terms of rural towns, yeah. it was one of the few papers that yeah. Yeah, the, yeah the few national papers. I thought Sky After Dark their, yeah. their movement into the r- 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 sort of more regional areas for free to air really yeah.
1: Yeah, uh, it, and it's cheap for the read to mm-hmm. and um, everybody's happy. Um, but, um, yeah, no, I, I think, you know, it, it is a problem. Um, the media's fractured. People aren't interested in all the fights. They just want to know what's happening. And I, But I think if there's a positive that should come out of the pandemic, it is that, you know, it's, it's made people, you know, desperately keen to find out what's going on again. So, you know, if you talk to anybody in... Melbourne or Victoria, you know, during the lockdown last year, it was a ritual that everybody just watched the Dan Andrews press conference, which might Mm. explain the sort of, you know, whole, you know, deification of Dan thing, um, (laughs) because he'd stand there and just answer questions till they'd run out of questions, which I think is an admirable admirable thing, Mm. whether you like the answers or not. So the global pandemic does change things, but I don't think that the government is Teflon um, coated. I think... It's interesting, the last news poll shows that the uh, federal government was, and certainly Scott Morrison's ratings were falling as a result of the Victorian lockdown. So it shows that people are distinguishing a little bit. Um, You know, the Victorian polls are also sort of being hit because people are really angry about, you know, their businesses closing down. Mm -hmm. But they they can see this is the bit that I'm angry about, Victoria about, and this is the bit that I'm angry with Scott Morrison Mm -hmm. and the government about. So you know it's 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 still hard to see given the seats that the government has to lose and labor has to win around the country you know how how a change comes about because there isn't that sort of sense of mood for change and that whole thing about stability in times of crisis and all those sorts of things but i don't think um you can sort of just presume that people aren't you know aren't registering and i mean i i sort of quite you know the dangers of anecdotal things but i ran into a woman Who I sort of served me in a shop for years and years, who who volunteered that she was a coalition voter and ex-military and things, and you know it's one of those sort of Mark Latham and John Howard handshake moment things where she just uh, she was saying, oh I just can't believe how bad the government is on how how bad Morrison is. She didn't say the Prime Minister, how bad Morrison is on handling this vaccination rollout. And I said, oh well, you know, it's not doesn't seem to be going too well or something. And uh, Mm. she said, and why have we all got to have AstraZeneca when he had Pfizer? And, you know, it's those really uh, – okay. and pe- pe- that comes out a lot. You know, mm. people notice that he got Pfizer and they can't get it. And, you know, we, we get sort of so obsessed about the big things in politics, mm. but so often it's something like that which really gets under people's skin mm. because it's something really identifiable that they can go, well, wait a minute, if it's good enough
0: for him, not me, you know. Interesting. Mm. Interesting. Interesting. Do you worry that the, the media has lost the power to shift the debate and shift the narrative at all? Uh, no, I think
1: our job is to inform people and for them to demand answers and often people aren't out there demanding answers except yelling at journalists on Twitter mm-hmm. instead. But, I mean, I'm, I'm philosophical about it. I mean, I, I suppose my view is newspapers started as pamphlets yeah and you know, and they were, and they were they all looked like the Australian only <laughs> pr- promoting different sort of arguments. The idea that we're all just incredibly balanced and papers of record is quite a new invention. right? And I suppose I am actually encouraged, um maybe that's my optimistic streak, but you know, yes, it's bad that you get the fragmentation of media. If a story takes off, you know it, often the media doesn't all jump on board and mm-hmm. pursue it as they should. But at the same time, we've got such a diversity of outlets now, Mm -hmm. of varying quality, that um, even if uh, what people call the mainstream media uh, aren't (laughs) covering something, it's usually out there. And I can think of lots of examples of that. And why isn't the mainstream media covering it? Well, it's not through any conspiratorial silence. Mm. It's just... There's only so many minutes in a program, and there are some things that you've got to cover, and it's harder to break out and mm-hmm. and do other things. But so I'm incredibly grateful and relieved that there is so much scrutiny being put on uh, politicians of whatever persuasion. It's not as organised as it once was. Mm-hmm. It's it's much more hit and miss, uh, and I think the fact that the, you know, the institutions of government like the public service are sort of much less than they were makes it harder to cover these things, but they are being covered uh, and
0: I think that's a good thing. Who do you think is doing a really good job at the moment in terms of when you look at some of the broadsheets or the you know print media a broadcast? Who do you think? Uh, ABC aside, of course. ABC aside. Um, look, I think the Guardian
1: website has really mm-hmm. come into its own. Mm-hmm. Um, my old colleague Lenore Taylor has, I really mm-hmm. think, lifted that. I mean, it was... Good anyway, but um, and I think the blog format works Mm -hmm. really, really well for them, and they do go off and do the investigations. You know, they put the resources into into chasing stories, so I think that's great. Uh, I think the Sydney Morning Herald has really come back. You know, from a from a fairly low point a few years ago, Um, they've got a lot of good people on board and have become a really good newspaper again. I think Crikey's really lifted its game Mm -hmm. in the last twelve or eighteen months. Uh, under Peter Frey, and, you know, I I like the long-form style of the Saturday paper and the monthly. Mm. So, yeah, I think all of those, you know, are good things to to look at.
0: Lastly, while we've been unpacking some of the biggest issues facing the country and our media, you still obviously believe in the profession of journalism. What message do you have for young journalists starting out? Oh, just do it, you know. um, (laughs)
1: You've just, just got to go for it. And I did mean, you ever work for Nike? No, just do it. No. Oh, sorry, sorry, <laughs> sorry, sorry. I didn't even realise what I'd said. Oh my god, it wasn't, it wasn't a subliminal plug. I don't even. I don't even I'm know kidding. any Nike. I, I, <laughs> um, I am kidding. I yeah. think. I think that's a good. Um, yeah. 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 No. I, yeah. You've just. I, uh, you've. And I, I suppose it's you know remember what it is that you're trying to do. I mean, I I, I used to be asked to talk to groups of university students doing journalism and it became a bit of a sort of a running joke actually Mm -hmm. because somebody would sort of egg me on to say this and say, how many of you want to be anchor people? (laughs) And like 80% (laughs) of them, and it was sort of like they all wanted to be famous. You know, The thing to do is to actually be going, what am I here for? I'm actually here to tell a story, let my readers, viewers, whatever, make up their own mind. They might disagree with what I'm saying, but I want to give them some information and I want to give them a framework for thinking about the information because I think the role of journalists has changed a lot because we're bombarded with information mm-hmm. now, but most of us don't have time to actually absorb it. So I think the job of journalism is actually to undertake to understand what the issue is and write from that perspective, not just say, you know, dog bites man. It's just to say, you know, well, what's the context for this dog biting the man? I mean, that that is where the value is and I don't think... Collectively, we spend enough time actually apprising ourselves of the, you know, the background of a story, the history of an issue, and 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 reporting on it from that informed perspective.
0: Laura Tingle, thank you so much for joining us in Fourth Estate. My pleasure. And thank you for listening to Fourth Estate. This edition was recorded at the studios of Two and heard across the country on the community radio network. Fourth Estate is produced with the assistance of the Community Broadcasting Foundation, thanks to the foundation for their continuing support. Make sure you subscribe to Fourth Estate on your favourite podcast app, so you can hear us talk media, politics and a lot in between. We'll be back with more next week, of course, but in the meantime, you can stay in touch with us on Twitter. Our handle is Fourth Estate AU. A big thanks, as always, to my executive producer, Anthony Dockrell. My name's Tina Quinn. You can catch us next week on Fourth Estate.